Dottie. It is Sunday night, and we are here in the KZSM studios. That music means it is Riasis here on KZSM.org. KZSM 104.1 LPFM, San Marcos, Texas. Kathy, you're all bundled up, and uh, isn't that nice change for us a little bit? Well, you know, the Texas weather, what can we say? I just just complaining last week because we went from having all this hot weather to going straight into a really, really cold uh, weather and I said I remember when I was talking about it, I wish you know it'd get cold and now it's cold and I want it to go away oh she's already <laughs> I know it's already? just I'm... I want that medium you know that really nice weather I don't want too hot or too cold but... well I was up at the uh, San Marcos I noticed you didn't come up to the flea market today I was like oh no I'm not going to go find him up there at Wonder World Cave well I didn't think you were going to be up there it was kind of not nice yeah so. well but we had uh, Joe was up there with the barbecue mm-hmm. and he had uh, his cousins were up there and they had menuda and they had uh, mm-hmm. uh, some uh, uh, chicken soup Soup. Uh, what am I trying to? Um, like caldo? caldo. N- no, not caldo. Uh, with tortilla the, soup. No, with the uh, uh, pasole. Uh, uh, Thank oh. you. I was started. I just I blew it. I was like, what am I? And I had because I like the pasole and uh, with the hominy. You know, and uh, that's uh, that was just. We were sitting out there. We were cold. It was rainy. The mist was coming in, and I am just sitting there with some hot pasole and a bar and a barbecue taco, and just sitting there. And it's like, oh yeah. This is great. I, you know, I could have been out there in 103 degrees, which it was just a month or two ago. And no, it's it was a nice day to be out there. And we were talking neighbors, and we were talking about. I was telling about uh, that you were going to be on the show tonight. I was telling everybody to tune in, and we were talking about uh, you know your your mother and uh, the the when she's been on talking about some things. So Kathy, I'm going to let you introduce your guest and, and go into the show here. Well, you know, as you mentioned, we've had you know our guest. We've had her mom here. We, we like having both her mother and her father here. And, of course, her daughter was just here not too long ago. So we want to welcome um, this evening to our show, Bobby Garza Hernandez. Right. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. And so, you know, as always, we do our very first segment. I like to talk about, um, you know, our genealogy, you know, mm-hmm. where our parents are from. And and I'll go ahead and let you let you start and tell Great. us a little bit about, about your mom and your dad. Well, by now you... Everybody in this town should know a little bit about mom and dad. Uh, they've, they've been business owners here for decades and uh, are pretty well known and been involved in community. But I am the great-granddaughter of Ignacio and Manuela Garza, and I'm the granddaughter of Marcos and Fidela Garza and Dan and Adelfa Nevarez. And then Freddie and Sylvia Garza are my parents. Uh, Ignacio and Manuela were one of the very first uh, families, Tejano families, to settle here in San Marcos. So we are now seven generations of Garzas. And uh, my grandfather, Marcos, 
Uh, they were nine siblings, and they all uh, set up their families here. One of them ended up moving up north, but the rest of them are all here, so it's a really, really large, large family. And my grandfather and grandmother had 18 children. So the Garza family is pretty extensive here, and a good majority have, of them have stayed here in the area. Uh, many of them built businesses. and Yeah, and, I, I was going to say, especially with the, with the Garzas, even the generation above you and now the, the next generation, because, of course, you know, you're related to Velma, right? Yes, she I has, am. She has uh, mm-hmm. Velma's Cakes, right? Yeah, Doria's Cakes. Doria's uh-huh. Cakes, and then um, your... Victory Cleaners. Victory Cleaners, yeah. <laughs> That's now second generation. It's going into third probably yeah. soon here. And, of course, Uncle Henry, he had his mm-hmm. business up there in uh, Connecticut. Yes, so in Connecticut. And then um, oh, um, your uncle who had his place over in San Antonio. Marcos? Marcos. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, he did. Near shirts. Yeah, yes. so you come from a family of entrepreneurs yeah, who have gone yeah. into we, it. It was highly likely that I would end up uh, building a business as well. Mm-hmm. I've had a public relations company for about... 26 years, uh, Pink Consulting, and majority of my clients are in the Austin area, but um, uh, slowly I'm beginning to uh, to get clients here in, in San Marcos since I moved back. Well, I I did a little research because I was looking for your photos so I could put up, and then I saw you, you worked with Gus Garcia? I did. I was his chief of staff for five years. Wow. And so anybody who does know Gus Garcia was a city council member in Austin, right? He was, and he became the very first Hispanic mayor elected to the city council in Austin. Um, quite an amazing individual. And he was, was well-known, and he mm-hmm. did a lot. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a great opportunity. I think I learned a lot about community organizing uh, while I worked for him. So, so in that part of that community organizing that you did, right, because I, I think a lot of us here, especially for myself, you know, I'm kind of like that, that person that's like, no, you stick your, your foot on the neck and you get what you want. But when, you were, when you're in a big place like Austin, there's just so many, so many things. So how, how did you learn that skill about that negotiation? How, 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 how does that work? Well, part of it was um, I actually took mediation classes <laughs> uh, when I was in school at St. Edward's and... Uh, but some of it is really learning to listen to people. Um, I led or facilitated a meeting of 19 uh, Hispanic art organizations at one time. And if you're familiar with how arts and arts groups, artists and arts groups get funded in most municipalities, it comes from the bed tax dollar. So there's this huge amount of money that goes into this one pot and art organizations or individual artists can apply for uh, grant funding. Well, a huge amount of that money goes to the top organizations, like the, like the symphony, like the ballet, like the opera, and the, the large museums. So they take a large part of the money at the top right away. Yes, and then there's a little bit left. And what we found was that the organizations of color were getting a very minute mm-hmm. uh, percentage of it. And it seemed like they were fighting for this little tiny sliver of the pie. And so um, we worked on a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts, and we were funded for a three-year consortium building project that I led with uh, La Peña, Mechicarte, uh, and, uh, and Gus's office. 
And so subsequently, um, I had this meeting with these 19 organizations, and it was my first induction into how to mediate a pretty hostile group of individuals. Well, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's a little bit of the pie, and so they're watching what each one is getting, and if right. somebody's getting more or getting some that others aren't getting, yeah, it's got to be really What I learned from that, though, was that if you really listen carefully, as I kept writing on the whiteboard that, you know, these were the issues, these were the issues, and at the very end, you know, it was, look, look at all of the things that are similar to every one of you. Mm-hmm. And so why are you not partnering together to address these issues? And so it came about, we were able to build coalition, and they learned how to work in partnership with each other so they could utilize each other's spaces when times were down for one and up for the other, and that that way they ended up saving costs. But I knew that after I had gone through that, that I was pretty ready for even the United Nations because it was a very difficult group. Listening uh, to community is important. I think because I love people and I love helping to solve problems, um, it's just kind of been my nature to, to be cast into the various projects that I've been involved with. And the, our PR company uh, focuses mostly on uh, community outreach and engagement. And it was at a time when we started the company in 1997 that there was a lot of neighborhoods that were disenfranchised from the decision-making process at the city level. So I think we've been able to build a niche with, you know, with, with regards to being successful at doing that. Um, the friendships and relationships that I built while working with uh, former Mayor Garcia helped uh, me continue to, you know, to utilize um, those relationships to go in and meet with community leaders uh, during uh, the times that we've had projects. And we've been selective. We're very careful about the projects that we take on. Uh, we don't want to become, you know, uh, mostly the the carrier of projects that maybe are not going to be a positive impact to a community. So when, uh, I, and I re, I'm, I'm going to go back and kind of recollect, because I remember at one time that uh, Gus was having a little bit of a hard, a hard time while he was there. There was just so much stuff coming. So were you part, were you on his... Um, still there in his office when all this was happening? Uh, there it was, just seems like in, a lot of pushback against him. In the beginning, uh, there was. There had been a lot of division uh, within the community um, because of one of the previous council members that had come. He was from an out, outside. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so having to go in and, and getting to know. The fact that Gus was uh, also from, from the Laredo area, mm-hmm. he came to UT and he stayed. But Native Austinites did didn't not, see him. yeah, didn't yep. see him as part of their community until much later. And even when he was elected to city council, he had already served on the on the Austin ISD school board, and so he had already, you know, beca- begun to work with the various communities. So he had already built a coalition, a little bit mm-hmm. of a coalition, which mm-hmm. helped him out a little bit. Yeah, and it was the beginning of the civil rights movement. Um, 
well, civil rights movement in Austin area with regards to, you know, the the uh, Latino or the Mexican American communities uh, coming forward and and becoming more active, active vocal. Yeah, because I remember, you know, coming into Austin when I was little. My dad would always take us down Holly Street, right, and we'd go down Holly Street into those areas, and um, we'd end up over there off of Guadalupe Street, and then we'd cross over and we'd go over there to that area where the buttercrust mm-hmm. bread. Uh, Springdale, yeah, yes. Springdale area. We had a lot of a lot of people that we knew in there. And we'd always go visit, and I remember thinking, so like when I travel with my dad into other areas, that these other areas seem to be flourishing, but it seems like this these areas just stayed the same. There, nothing really, really changed, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, when you don't speak out, you don't get the things that you need. Mm-hmm. So how how did the coalition come to try to change for the neighborhoods, like you know, like in that area? Part of it was helping neighborhoods organize as neighborhood associations in, so that they could be recognized by the city as a bona fide neighborhood group. And so we did a lot of assistance in, in, in that area. There were a lot of neighborhood organiz- or, or neighborhoods that hadn't organized at all. And so we had to come and help identify individuals that could be community leaders. Some were already acting as community leaders, but didn't realize mm-hmm. that they were community leaders. They were just doing the work that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And it was also during a time when we were coming off of a of um, voting, I guess, plan where we had neighborhood captains. I don't know if you were mm-hmm. around when we did that. And so we already had some community leadership that was being developed uh, without even realizing it. So issues, of course, bring people together. And so they began to, uh, to reach out to each other and say, if we work together, then you know, we can get more people there. They learned how to mobilize individuals you know, to turn out at council meeting or to reach out to council members. Or teach them how to come and speak at a council mm-hmm. meeting, how to write a letter. Exactly. Because I think, you know, there's so many of us that are out there, and I think this is the thing that we really don't talk about, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, they, they have that desire, but that fear keeps them. If I get up and I say something that I shouldn't say, or how should I mm-hmm. say this, how should I write that? Right. And so I think that kind of keeps them away from that but I think once you start to help them along the way then it then it comes out and uh, a lot of us a lot of us we don't we want to come out but we don't come out until something bad really happens to our neighborhood mm-hmm. or something happens to one of our friends and so yeah I think giving people that tool is a very important thing yes and I hope one of the things that I did learn from him was um, when you have authority and you want to continue to have authority uh, share it. And so the more that you teach others to engage or to, to, um, to become empowered, it further empowers you because then you've made, you know, a whole new group of individuals that you can also reach out to. But you have to see it that way. And I find a lot, I think, especially in the Hispanic community is that people that have that power, they don't want to share it. They Mm -hmm. kind of want to hold on to it. They want to keep it. They don't want somebody to Mm -hmm. come and maybe take what they had and so I think that in the Hispanic community kind of keeps us down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I agree with you um, wholeheartedly I agree with you. I think that we we now have um, perhaps a new generation that is more open to that. Part of it may be because they've had more opportunity than the previous or generations you know so when you 
previous generations have gotten a little bit of power, um, of course they're going to tend to, you know, to hang on to that. Uh, I think newer generations have had the opportunity to get educations. Um, they're more open to dialogue with, you know, with uh, groups that maybe are different. And so hopefully we're, we're getting past that. Um, and I'm hoping I guess, so. I guess, too, you know, they've seen somebody that has helped them, so they know maybe that in somebody saying to them, I'm helping you, but you got to go and help somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Are we ready That's for a break? Yeah, let's okay. take a quick break. And you're listening to Rice is here on KCSM, KCSM LPFM. 104.1 San Marcos, Texas. As a reminder, the views expressed on this show are those of the hosts and the guests and not necessarily those of KZSM or SMTXCRA, its governing board. And we're going to be right back with you after this uh, quick station announcement. And uh, the Kissing Alley, we were talking about arts grants, and this is funded through arts grants here from the Motel Hotel Tax in San Marcos, Texas. We are proud to be the uh, host of this series that we do six times a year here with KCSM and uh, with the help of the city and uh, so come on out this next Thursday Join the KCSM family on November 16th starting at 7 o'clock until 9 p.m. It is Thursday, November 16th. We are going to be having as our special guest Jordan Miner in the Bottom Dollar Band. Going to be featuring Slim Bob Pierce on the pedal steel. And this is going to be a night of old-time gospel and contemporary hits. Free, downtown, family-friendly. So come on out and join us and Jordan Miner. On Thursday, November 16th, from 7 to 9 p.m., for the November Kissing Alley concert, is underwritten by a grant from the City of San Marcos Arts Commission. ¿Recuerdas la última vez que tu familia visitó el bosque? Es un lugar de maravilla e imaginación para toda la familia, donde las historias cobran vida y están más cerca de lo que crees. ¿Listo para planear tu próxima visita? Haz que el bosque forme parte de tu historia hoy en un parque local cerca de ti o encuentra uno en descubreelbosque.org traído a ti por el Servicio Forestal de los Estados Unidos y el Art Council. Hola. Si tiene ganas de escuchar música en español, júntense conmigo cada domingo a las 8 de la noche por música con ganas aquí con el tío en su radio comunidad. Compartiré con ustedes poesías, música de mi juventud, música contemporánea y ojalá música que le dé cálidos memorias. Cada domingo a las 8 de la noche aquí en su verdadero radio comunidad KZSM. And we're back with you here. Yeah. And uh, Musica Conganis is coming up uh, here in just a little while at 8 o'clock tonight with uh, Uncle Gene. So uh, we're back to Kathy here in the studio. So you, you grew up here in San Marcos, and I want to ask you um, about the neighborhood that you grew, grew up in. What was San Marcos like back then? And if there's anybody that you remember, you know, vivid memory of that is no longer here with us, so... Absolutely. There's a lot of, of individuals that are that are gone now. So uh, my parents bought their first home or got their first home 
on the on McGee Street on the east side of Cheatham. My great grandparents and my grandparents lived on the west side of McGee Street, uh, west of Cheatham. So they were they were part of that um, first neighborhood that was built uh, with Tejano families. Majority were Tejano families. Uh, ultimately, it ended up uh, developing into a pretty large neighborhood because then it expanded across Cheatham Street all the way to I-35. Uh, when I was five years old, they purchased a larger home on South Mitchell Street. But I spent a lot of my time with my uh, my, my maternal grandparents, with, with Dan and, and Adelfa Nevarez on Armstrong. on Armstrong Street. That's how I knew the Lottas. And so, um, so I grew up in the beginning in East Guadalupe. Then I spent a lot of my time, majority of my childhood, with my grandparents in Barrio de la Victoria, Victory Gardens. And then my parents purchased that home on South Mitchell, which is actually part of the Dunbar Neighborhood Association. So um, I've, I grew up in a, in a very diverse uh, area of, of our community. And, you know, one block over, you know, lots of white kids. One block to the other side, lots of Hispanic kids. One block to the north, lots of African-American kids. So we would all gather. It seemed like our home was in the middle of all of these neighborhoods. And so the kids would go together. My parents also purchased an additional lot behind their, their home. And so that became like our playground. And so we had baseball games. The boys would play football out there. It was just kind of a place where we gathered. Uh, a lot of the kids would ride their bikes over, and then we'd go ride our bikes around the neighborhood and stuff. But it was always a kind of a gathering place for us. So I think part of you know our introduction <clears throat> into uh, um, acceptance of all people uh, was place there very early in our lifetimes. So yeah, it was a it was a, a neat growing up place. And so um you spent, you know, your time growing up in a in a home where you had a mother and a father who were major activists, right? Mm-hmm. So how was that for you when when uh, as in real time as that's going? Because I, I talked to Valerie whose grandmother lived down the street mm-hmm. from you being the Avon lady. And I asked her, what was that like growing up in a house like that where people are always ringing your doorbell and, you know, they come at mm-hmm. all hours of the night mm-hmm. and, you know, your, your grandmother has to make a living so she never says no. What was that like for you living in a home full of activists where I'm sure people were always coming mm-hmm. to your house? What was that like? It was, uh, it was interesting at best. Um, my parents, uh, I think, one, because, you know, they had, they had businesses um, that was empowering for them. And politicians, when they were running for office, would reach out to them because they knew these, they own businesses, they're in touch with lots of people in the community, this is someone that we've got to get on our campaign. But I saw, um, my mom especially, very, very active. Initially, there was the Women's Auxiliary with the GI Forum. There There was the first group of women that organized that. My mother was not in that first group, but my Aunt Betty was. Mm -hmm. And so they were, you know, their conversations were always about the activities that were going on there. Subsequently, they founded the Pioneer Women's Club. And what 
initially was a baseball team or a softball team of women morphed into uh, more of a women's organization. And that's when I began to see her really get involved with, uh, with policymaking. And those women went out and knocked on doors. They registered, got people to register to vote. They helped them raise the poll tax monies that they needed to, pl- to pay in order to vote. Um, they would have dances at the Cuauhtémoc, mm-hmm. and they would charge exactly the $1.30 or whatever it was that, that you had to pay to vote, um, and they would then donate those monies to individuals so they could go and vote. Yeah. And so uh, that a lot of the meetings that they held were at my parents' home. And, you know, we were there watching them have their discussions and talk about organizing. And on election night, I vividly remember election nights at our house because there would be lots and lots of of couples there with their kids. Mm -hmm. And they'd be watching the elections on television or listening to them on the radio and waiting, you know, to hear the results. And so, um, yeah, we were definitely involved with a a lot of the of the work that they were doing on the ground in the community. And so you grew up in an environment like that. When, at what age or what time did did you know that you were going to follow in the footsteps like this, like your mom? It was high school. And here's a couple of reasons why. Um, Something very interesting happened uh, when we uh, moved from, from elementary school to junior high and then into high school. All of a sudden, you know, we, we had a, a, a wide, diverse group of French friends in elementary school. Everybody got along. But something interesting happened when we went to junior high. All of a sudden, there was a separation. None of us knew why. I don't think many discussed it. Um, but a lot of the, the white girlfriends and guy friends that I had in elementary school um, we were still friends, but we're, we were not connected any longer. You know, hi in the hallway, but I was no longer being invited to their parties or their home or to activities with their families. <clears throat> and it didn't even occur to us until much later after we graduated. And there were many of us that came together, uh, a bunch of uh, gals from the class of 72, uh, we reunited because of Facebook, of all things, we connected, and we all got together, and that discussion came up. And here we were 30 years later and talking about what happened. We were such close friends when we were in elementary school, and then all of a sudden there there was this divide. And we don't know if it was ever really articulated by by their parents but all of a sudden the girls were not friends with the Hispanic or African-American girls they were not close friends with them any longer and the same happened you know so kind of that deal about when you're little, it's okay, but as you're growing, you have to have that separation. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of... Kind yeah, of that's really kind of what happened. And um, and truthfully, I don't really feel like 
many of us were really even cognizant mm-hmm. that it was happening. happening yeah. You know, we gravitated to the individuals that we had all grown up with, um, you know, the friends that we made as toddlers mm-hmm. because our parents were friends with their parents. And so, and then, of course, I had a multitude of cousins. Mm-hmm. Just my generation yeah. is 50 cousins. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you we, didn't. You didn't really notice it. I mean, maybe it was there, mm-hmm. but you didn't notice it. Right, yeah. and I don't think that we questioned it or, uh, like I said, articulated it. Mm-hmm. One of our friends mentioned that she was very close friends with. Um, she was. She's white, and she was very close friends with um, a Mexican American girl, and they even had sleepovers. Mm-hmm. And yet, all of a sudden, when they went to junior high, she was never again asked to come and and be part of a sleepover. Mm-hmm. And so the sleepovers that we had in high school, it was all Mexicanas, you know, Mexican-American girls. And uh, I don't recall ever any of us inviting, I mean, it worked both ways. We weren't inviting the white girls to come, mm-hmm. you know, for our sleepovers either. Do you think maybe it was like a, cult, a cultural thing or, I mean, you, I mean you're not going to say it was, it was kind of not like a racist thing, but cultural? It or? could very well have been just, you know, who do you relate to? Mm-hmm. You know, in that instance. They don't think like us. Mm-mm. They're not smart like us. Kind of can't be friends with them. It could be. But it was just a very interesting concept that we that we identified, mm-hmm. I guess, 30 years after but, graduating yeah. from high school. And I guess nobody really has an answer to what, you know, why it happened. We just know that it was maybe inferred by society. You know, maybe at the time uh, parents weren't, open to their daughters marrying mm-hmm. a, a guy of color oh, yeah, or, yeah. or well, a guy of color marrying a, a, a white girl well, or a Mexicana. Still, yeah, still, this is 1972, and I think so many people still haven't gotten past interracial marriages. So, <laughs> right. You know, or, or even marriages outside, outside of your religion. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in my family when I had my cousin married a uh, Mexicano here in Austin area, oh, Lord, that was just... You know, that was not a good thing back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You're you know, disinherited. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> and no I, money for you. Yeah, you know, it's just that society, whether that's right or wrong, looking at back at it from now, but those things happen. Well, one of the things that I constantly heard uh, growing up was, you know, from, from other family members or friends of my parents, if a Mexican-American or a, a young woman married a white guy, she married up. Mm-hmm. And I, that was confusing to me. Like, what? And you weren't allowed to marry uh, anybody darker skinned. Exactly. Than you either, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, you know, we had an African American woman that lived with us for, or worked with my mom and for, for my mom and dad, basically raised us. Pumpkin? Yeah, pumpkin. <laughs> and um, she was our mama. And, you know, she just, she was the one when we got home from school, she's the one that was there. Um, she's the one that took us, you know, drove us to our classes and took us on our park excursions and took us fishing and, and, you know, it was, so we had a very different upbringing. Her being in our home exposed me to Etta James and Bobby Blue Bland. And, you know, uh, it was, uh, wonderful to know that much about another culture. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned how to cook chili beans and, and cornbread the way her mom made them. And so it was, and she in turn learned from my mother how to make 
uh, Mexican food, you know, so that she could cook for us. And so uh, we've, we were, I think we're very fortunate during that time because we had, you know, such a wide variety of experiences. But I think, I think that says a lot uh, about, about your mom and your dad too, right? To not have that, um, that social and class barrier there because you do learn a lot. And, and I, I tell Rob, you know, for, for, for ourselves too, um, when you're exposed to a lot of different things, you start to see things a different Very way. Very differently. Right? You're, you're not stuck in this uh, little um, uh, square that you've been boxed into. And so you see, you see things differently. Much differently. Mm-hmm. I had the good fortune of living in the Middle East for three years with my girls. And people have often asked me, you know, gosh, what was that like? Was it terrible? And actually, those were three of the best, some of the best years of my life. One, because it was uh, a United Nations of, of uh, different customs, because you had the Koreans there, you had the Germans there, you had the British there, you had the French there. There were all kinds of companies that were there helping to build all this new infrastructure mm-hmm. in this country, and we were all living in similar areas and add to that living in a Muslim country. And so you learn, you, we had the opportunity to learn their customs and their traditions. And that was really eye-opening. And I think, too, kind of, it can be hard, right? I mean, you see it where you see all the good in it. But as a woman, when you're there and you're seeing, you know, the things that you can do here but you can't do there. Mm-hmm. So how do you restrain yourself, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's take a quick station ID break here, Kathy, and then we'll come on back. Uh, you're listening to Rice's here on KZSM.org, and we'll be right back with you. The Citizens Fire Academy Alumni Association invites you to their upcoming Pancakes with Santa. Come on out to Fire Station Number 5, Saturday, December 2nd, at 100 Carlson Circle in San Marcos, Texas, to enjoy a hot breakfast cooked by firefighters and get the kiddos' picture taken with Santa. This is the first time they've been able to host this event since 2019, and they're excited to once again open their doors to serve the community stacks of delicious pancakes for a great cause. This annual fundraising event helps generate the funds to purchase additional smoke detectors for the citizens of San Marcos who need it. The suggested cash-only donation for this event is $5 per plate or $15 per family. La familia Mendoza empezar el día oyendo esto es algo habitual. Por suerte, ir al bosque y terminar el día escuchando esto otro es posible. Ese respiro que tu familia necesita está a menos de 90 minutos. El Bosque, más cerca de lo que crees. Entra en descubreelbosque.org y descubre el bosque más cercano. Un mensaje del Servicio Forestal de los Estados Unidos y el Ad Council. And we're back with you here on Riasis on KZSM.org. Kathy. So I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned 1972, and I, I remember that there was an incident that happened at the high school. Mm-hmm. And I understood that that made, like, is it national news? National news. It was. We just celebrated um, the 50-year mark mm-hmm. of that of that walkout, and um, I have to I have to say that my attending art classes with Juan Palomo was a big part of my movement um, into social justice issues. 
he he inspired dialogue during those classes as we worked on our projects about some of the things that were happening there at the high school for those of us that were in minority community. And uh, we had already begun to have expression in the class while we were working on those projects about the inequities that that many had you know had been had 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 to incur um i myself had an incident uh none of my class none of my uh my family members had gone to college and i thought i was going to go to college so i went to speak to a counselor to inquire uh, whether they might be able to assist me with my my application, and my counselor told me, "Oh, I don't think you're meant to go to college. I think you'd make a great secretary." Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a straight A student. I mean, I did. I I think I made my first B in eighth grade, and my parents grounded me. <laughs> but uh, but I was a good student and absolutely eligible to go to to go to college. And the sad thing was that I believed her. And instead of applying to Southwest Texas at the time, I applied to Drawn School of Business, which was a one-year program in Austin, to learn how to become a good secretary. And it was while I was in that uh, in that program, uh, they had some professors from UT that would come and teach some of the classes, and one of them took, took me aside and said, what are you doing here? You know, you have extraordinary capacities, and you really should be in the university setting. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was a real big turning point for me, but later I found out that it had happened to a lot of other students. Uh, my husband today, well, you know, a lot of, he tells a story about how many times his friends and he were told that they would make good welders, and he actually became a welder. And so it's, you know, it's unfortunate that we were being um, directed, in directed into different pathways when there were so many of us that were quite capable of doing some extraordinary things. I think my being employed by, Texas, by the Texas Education Agency's Education Service Center in Austin was what really opened it up for me because I had an executive director that helped pay my tuition uh, for my classes. And also I had a lot of support from staff members that I worked with um, that really were, encouraged me to, to get into a program and, and complete it. And so, um, like I said, I was just you know really blessed to have that happen. Kind of in a way, maybe uh, this was not your place, so maybe that was a favor that was done for you because look at where you ended up, Mm -hmm. and it could not have been as good here, right? Right, and maybe it was just, yeah, the moving out into another place, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I felt like I really did not experience racism until I moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. Part of that, I think, was because I was a kid of, of... business owners. Well, Pete, you were known here, so when yes. you get out there, you're in a setting where nobody knows you, right? Yeah. And you're just... It was very different uh, moving to Austin, mm-hmm. and there was clear division. I mean, it, we all know now that it was very intentional that they moved all the Mexicanos to east of 35. Mm-hmm. That was very intentionally done. That is recorded in there as being done. And so um, it's coming back home then, 
Uh, and I, as I began to, to research my family's history, then I'm coming across this whole thing with what happened in the 60s and 70s here in Austin. I mean, here in San Marcos. And, well, we had to walk out in 72. Our parents were totally behind it. They, um, they were fighting the school board for a lot of things. Um, the inequities in the library, for instance. There was not one book in the library that was written by a Mexican-American or African-American author, or there were no books about Mexican-American or African-American individuals. And no, and no teachers, right? With exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, we had a couple then, uh, Spankling, you know, maybe a handful. But at the time, I believe uh, there were no principals that were Hispanic uh, at, in, in the schools. And so um, that was one of them. The other was the inequity in the disciplines that were being handed out between mm-hmm. white kids and kids of color. Um, counseling was not available to this issue of how we were being counseled also came up. And then for those students that were really needing counseling for perhaps things that going on in the home, it was just not there. Mm-hmm. And then the dress code came up. And, you know, being some of us that identify as Hispanic are very much indigenous. As you know, this was the Vietnam era, the hippie movement. It was coming in there at the time. And, and so um, the ability to... To, for a guy to have long hair was shunned. <laughs> you know, we were just not allowed to have that. I had one cousin who was actually um, the uh, president of our student body for our senior class, and he had long hair and he refused to cut it, so he'd pull it up uh, every morning and put a, a wig on and go to school like that. Mm-hmm. And in our class picture, he's not there. He was not allowed to, to be in the class picture, mm-hmm. even though he wore a wig. And so there was that. And then, you know, when they imposed the dress code, there were more Hispanic and black kids that were sent home for infractions, infractions than white kids. Mm-hmm. So um, our parents stood up for us at school board meetings uh they just did not seem to be able to you know to to get a you know get any thing done uh subsequently they ended up electing peter rodriguez mm-hmm. who's my uncle and and ophelia vasquez to the board and mm-hmm. so they were they be, we began to at least have the discussions even though there were the votes were not there and that's when the walkout was approved by our parents. And then, and then the uh, school board president he resigned. Did he yes, not? Yes. You know? Yeah. So we ended up um, when they walked out, they all went over to Southside mm-hmm. Community Center, and we had college students that came and tutored us through the whole day. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. you know, our parents were were told by the superintendent that they were going to be. Um, they were going to file charges against them for keeping our kids from school, and they still did it. So 
um, it wasn't just it's a free day of school. There was a lot of discussion as we grouped about why it was happening. So there was another reason for many of us that ended up. And so did, did it bring the change that you guys were looking for? It did. It actually did. Um, so it was just um, that time. The walkouts had already happened in California. Um, Crystal City had had them. And so, yeah, it was well, record-breaking time. And it's kind of amazing. So what were some of the changes, though, that came about? What were some of the things that you accomplished by doing that? They, uh, they had the books brought into the library. They had a designated area where those books were to be kept. And they also put together a group or a committee made up of students, parents, and teachers that could come together to discuss issues that were coming up within the student body and to help address them before they had to go uh, to the school board. Uh, the counseling issue was addressed as well, and the dress code was changed. And, and you see these movements that are happening in the larger cities, and it may not have come to San Marcos had you not had Mr. Palomo kind of to help to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. It may not have happened. Is, do you think that? Right. Well, and unfortunately... His contract for his teaching contract was not renewed mm. after that. Those are some of the things the that we suffered. That yes. um, Frank Contreras, mm -hmm. as you know, was very much a part of that, uh, the movement then. And he was on the city council, but he also worked for the school district. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he could not participate in this with us, even though he was part of the leadership. And um, I remember, you know, they're saying, no, my dad you know, said, Frank, you need to stay out of it because then we lose you. And he was the very first Hispanic principal ever appointed by by the district. And we couldn't afford to lose him in that capacity. He brought the, the, uh, the first bilingual program to San Marcos, and it was the second bilingual program in the state of Texas. Mm. And he's had a stellar career, too. He's and he's, he's, what, 92 now? Is that? I believe so, yeah. yeah. He's a little bit older than my dad. But they were childhood friends mm -hmm. and, you know, have remained friends for all of these decades. Let's, let's take a quick station ID break. You're listening to KZSM. Uh, this is Riasis here on 104.1 KZSM LPFM, San Marcos, Texas. As a reminder, the views expressed on the show are those of the host, the guests, and not necessarily those of KZSM or uh, SMTX CRA, the governing board. We'll be right back. How many roads must a man walk down before they call him a man? Listen, speak, and learn from the many different voices of our diverse community. Join us from 7 to 8.30 p.m. on the second Thursday of each month for Voices at the Table. This free series features guest speakers from different cultural groups in our community with the aim of building awareness and understanding of different perspectives and experiences. You'll hear from racial and ethnic groups, religious and spiritual groups, LGBTQIA, and other marginalized populations. Voices at the Table is brought to you by the San Marcos Unitarian Universalist Fellowship and meets at First Christian Church, 3105 Ranch Road 12 in San Marcos. Bring your questions and engage in lively dialogue. We'll see you there. 
as we're talking about the community coming together to talk about these issues. Uh, I think that's a very appropriate one for uh, the churches here to to still be talking and bringing people together because we still have a lot of the issues that are there. Then, and you know, a lot of times we don't talk about them, and uh, that's a good way for us to do that. So, Kathy, back to you. So, uh, the uh, city has their master comprehensive plan that that everybody's been talking about. There's so many people up in arms because of the uh, the three um, options options that that have been given, and so many people now are wanting to have the um, the parks. But I wanted you to talk to me about the thing that you've been working on with uh, the uh, designation for. Yes. Uh, um, so as I began to uh, research more and more of the Garza family's history, of course, we found out that my great grandparents had purchased, I believe, four properties initially in the Katy edition uh, one for their own uh, home, another one for one of my great grandfather's sisters. And then they bought additional ones so that they could have them available to other Hispanic families that wanted to live there. Every year that Marcos and Fidela took the family to work in other states in agriculture, they would come back and use part of that money that they earned to buy another property. So subsequently, they ended up purchasing nine or ten more properties. And so whenever you know one of the, the sons got married or daughters got married there there was another property so that's why everybody lived in the same neighborhood unfortunately there was a movement by the city council and texas state university or southwest texas at the time to uh rethink that corridor that is now cm allen from uh from hopkins street all the way to uh, cheatham street and actually, the university really wanted it to go all the way to I-35. They felt that they needed a, a, a tourist attraction uh, that would bring, you know, economic uh, impact here, positive economic impact, impact. And then, of course, we also got the library and the uh, activity center out of that in the process. But... They imposed urban renewal, or they brought together urban renewal and urban renewal imposed eminent domain. There were 314 families that were displaced as a result of that. Um, they did it in the research that we did of old newspaper articles, tons of them. Um, a lot of the articles tried to um, state that it was a slum area, and it wasn't. There was there were a lot of beautiful Victorian homes in that in that uh, neighborhood. So all of the homes went from the Mackey Street on the west side of Cheatham, from where Mackey Street is, all the way to the river. Mm -hmm. There were homes. A lot of people don't know that there were lots of homes where Rio Vista Park mm -hmm. is now, along the river, all the way to Hopkins Street. And um, they were bought out. They didn't have a choice. They were bought out and had to move to other areas of town. So 310 Mexican-American property owners, two white property owners, and two African-American property owners uh, lost those properties. So as this issue came up recently, I was reminded that it would be very, very disrespectful 
for a decision to be made to develop those lands when all of those 314 families were being told that we couldn't have development there because of flooding. Yet, all of the properties on the north side of the river, which are lower in the floodplain and also get flooded, were not even touched. So that's on the Riviera side. Yes, and the only difference is that all of the properties on the north side of the river were owned by white families, prominent white families. And I actually live on Riviera Street now, so it's kind of ironic. But um, I understood that all of that land had become dedicated parkland. So I was very surprised when the corner of Cheatham Street and C.M. Allen was developed into a small little shopping strip and then came to find out then some of those properties that were on McGee Street were also purchased by a real estate company. One of those properties being the property that my great-grandparents and my grandparents lived on. That property today, Kathy, is worth $1.2 million. That little lot is worth $1.2 million. And there are other properties that were on the riverfront that were owned by Tejano families that would probably be worth twice that much yeah. now. Mr. Gonzalez, who had the taxi cab place, mm-hmm. Frank's Taxi, they lived there. I remember going there when we were little to his place. I mean, he was right on the river. We would just leave his house and go down. He had a little platform down mm-hmm. there. And we'd go down there and we'd fish. And yes. Yeah, so you can just imagine all the revenue that the Hispanic families lost by yes. having this prominent, prominent mm-hmm. land. They lost community. They lost their neighbors. They lost um, the culture that was there. They lost a lot of the businesses that had, you know, launched mm-hmm. there because there was no ne- ne- no neighborhood so to support them year, anymore. What year was this that this happened? About uh, It was the late, 70s, late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. So, you know, when you go down and you go down along the park and you go along the trails, in 1976, they were dedicating all of this, and it was, you know, making this parkland for the bicentennial. But it was on the backs of all of this property that yes. had been for you know been taken by eminent domain. Yes, and I I truly believe that um, at the time because it was happening all across the United States, urban renewal was a new program that was being initiated. Um, but now we know, in hindsight, that most of those urban renewal projects were used to displace people of color, communities of color. And a good majority of them were displaced because they were too close to downtown. Um, There are documentaries currently on PBS that tell the stories of many, many of those communities that got displaced as a result of urban renewal. Yeah, you need need that money to make money, and so you you buy cheap and you move everybody out, and now you've gotten a piece of property Mm -hmm. that is gonna make you millions. Yes, exactly. I think it's important for the city council to understand that now, that um, that it should remain parkland. To come in with the development now would be to say it was okay for us to displace all of that community. They lost generational wealth mm-hmm. as a result of that as well. I mean, Paulina Espinosa, who is now a superhero in our community, her house was one of those houses 
she actually could afford to have her house picked up and relocated, which is what she did. Mm-hmm. Her rock home is now over on Bishop, Bishop Street. Street, yes. But her house was right there at where the Parks and Rec Department do, building do, is. Do you know, I want to ask this question because my Uncle Alex said to me, you know, in the conversations that we've had, he goes, when you go down there and you're going towards the park, he said, if, uh, when you get to the tennis courts, he says, look over to the right. He says, a Hispanic lady who had a really, really nice house there. Her house is gone, but the well to her house mm-hmm. remains. Do you know who, who owned that property? I don't remember who that was. There are actually two of them that are on the property, mm-hmm. two of the wells that are on the property. One is closer to Reynolds Street, which is the entrance mm-hmm. to Rio Vista Park. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, we have um, we have a, a copy of the of the map that, you know, that is on file with Hayes County of the Katy edition and, you know, what the lots were. Uh, my Aunt Dora got displaced. My my Uncle Nacho's house was displaced. And there were many others, my, you know, that ended up uh, having to move. My mother had a brother that lived there that they, they had to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think the Ortizas were there, too. So. Right. And I'm having these conversations with people, and now they're telling me, oh, yeah, we used to live there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so I think that um, it is important um you know, right now, you know, you were asking me, what am I doing now? Mm-hmm. The big, my big chapter right now is the building of the Indigenous Culture Center here in, in San Marcos uh, with Indigenous Cultures Institute. And there is such a need for that now, especially we are reminded because maintaining and preserving that cultural heritage is so important. You cannot imagine how many emails and calls we get on a regular basis from individuals who are trying to understand how they can find out more about their indigeneity. Mm-hmm. And so building an indigenous culture center here in San Marcos and in the, in the central Texas area is such a critical project when we have communities like that that have been wiped out. Um, for me, this is, you know, this is preserving um, an institution. It's preserving... Uh, a heritage. It's preserving the culture and traditions of communities. Well, and a lot of us with Hispanic surnames, yeah, we, we have this thing where we, we um, participate and celebrate the Hispanic culture, the Mexican culture, but so many of us, we have indigenous ancestry, and we it's been wiped away. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I have one more thing that I want to say before we close out to show that um, I want to congratulate you on being inducted into the uh, San Marcos Women's Hall of Fame. Thank you. And so that must must be a really, really great honor for you. How, do, how did you feel about being inducted into the organization? It was, um, it was humbling for me because it came from uh, a peer, you know, and to to be recognized for the work for me just says um, it's it's validating, but it also says you're doing okay, kid. You know, it's um, some sometimes you're not sure that you're you know you're passionate about something and you're not sure if really it's going to be received well. I mean, I've I've been bashed, you know, for for being part of of initiatives at times, and that's just, you know, the hard truth sometimes. But, yeah, but sometimes you have to stand up for the things that are right, no matter what people say. That's that's just the yeah. the bottom line. But anyway, it's almost 
time for us to close down the show and I'm so glad that you came by. I'm glad we had this conversation and I want to invite you back because there's just so much stuff that I want to talk to you about and I want to have you, your mom and your daughter here all at one time. No, you've gotten three generations. Well, they did find out that um, I believe that mom and I are the only mother-daughter act that have both been inducted into the San Marcos Women's Hall of Fame. I think we're the the first duo. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.